hear these words from the book that we love. This is Psalm 148 first. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. And Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord. So today we're actually ending a sermon series that we've been in for about nine weeks since mid-September on worship, specifically worship gatherings, different places in scripture where you see people gathered in worship. And we've been looking at what are they doing? What are they instructed to do? What are the patterns that you see across all scripture, Old Testament and New Testament? And what do we make of that when we come together in 2021 to worship? at a time when we're kind of reconsidering and uh, at least getting a refresh about what it looks like to worship together in person, Lord willing, coming out of a pandemic. And today is the last week, and let me just say, you know, you just start looking at worship in the Bible, and it's just like, my goodness, this is like seven years worth of sermon series. So a lot of places I thought we would go, you know, we come up against Advent next week, and I want to turn the page, because I don't want this series to go on forever, but I am going to share a lot of resources with you in the weeks to come. Uh, Just some letters to the congregation at the end of the year about some things I've been learning, some things that we are changing in worship, you know, not, not a great deal, some things you've already noticed that might be small to you, but actually we're hoping say a lot, some things about the other congregation that we share the building with, that we worship with a lot. I mean, relatively compared to the history of our church, and the next time is going to be on Christmas Eve. So stay tuned for a lot of that. But for today, we're going to wrap up this series like this. Keep noticing myself, maybe you've noticed as well, all these patterns that keep uh, emerging in Scripture when you look at worship. And I'm going to call it a fractal pattern. I don't know if you know that term, a fractal, but it's basically an endless pattern that keeps going on and on. So like, think of a tree. You got roots and you got a trunk and all these branches that grow out. 
Um, but if you take one part of that tree, like a, a branch off of it, you kind of turn it upright, it's the same pattern. It's almost like another trunk that keeps going outward. And if you, you could do that again and again with smaller and smaller branches, branches, it's like this pattern that keeps going. I mean, think about what we've seen. Worship spaces, there's all these similar patterns between all creation itself. You know, the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, the new creation. There's like this outer meeting space and like this increasingly holy space. It's across the whole Bible. Last week we were looking at um, the scene of communion, the last couple weeks we have, where Jesus uh, takes bread and breaks it, blessing it, breaks it and gives it out. It's kind of like the model for our worship service. And we've been talking about how that's kind of the model of our whole lives. You know, he takes us, he blesses us, you know, breaks us by his word, or at least transforms us and then sends us out. There's all these patterns that keep giving. If you've not been with us, forgive me, I don't want you to get lost, but I can't, I can't miss all of this stuff, and I really wanted to just land with this idea that worship, you see it everywhere in your whole life, in every part of scripture, in every part of the world. And some of the main places in scripture that show us this are right at the end of our psalm book. There are five psalms that end with hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's translated praise the Lord. And they're just, they start and end with this praise, praise, praise. The purpose and meaning of every part of creation says something about the whole. And the whole point of it all is worship. Worship. So, everything worships. That's my first point. My second point is, no, really, everything worships. You'll see what I mean. Everything worships. Look at page three again, or in your own Bible, if you've got it, hard copy or digital, whatever you got. Psalm 148. The psalmist keeps listing everything that they can think of in all creation on, get this, on both heaven and earth. It's like Genesis chapter 1 put to song. Verses 1 through 6 focuses just on things in heaven. The psalmist is commanding things in the heavens to praise the Lord. Sun, moon, stars, the heavens, angels, hosts, everything in the heavens. Worship him, praise him. And then verses 7 through 12 is everything on earth. Look, like everything that the psalmist can think of. Verses 8 and 9, fire, hail, praise the Lord, hail, wind, snow, mist, mountains and hills. And only then do we actually get to like animate objects. Verses 10, verse 10 and following, beasts and all livestock, creeping things, flying birds, and then 11 and 12, you get to people. And look at this, it's people of every nation, every station, every gender, and every age. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes, rulers of the earth, young men, maidens, old men, children, and it all culminates in verse 13. Let them all, get this, heaven and earth, praise the Lord. Let them all Hallelujah. And remember this, we looked at this the very first Sunday, if you were here back in September. In the scriptures, heaven and earth are like 
you know, heavens aren't really described so much as a place that we go after we die, although God certainly knows how to take care of his people after they die, as they await the final resurrection, for sure. But heavens and earth are, are more described as like twin halves of God's created reality that are meant to work together and destined eventually to come completely together, overlapping and interlocking dimensions of the same reality. Heaven and earth praise the Lord. Everything that exists, as Psalm 150 says, everything that has breath. But this isn't just about everything that has breath, right? Rocks praise the Lord. Wind praise the Lord. Everything, everything, everything praise the Lord. There's a book by C.S. Lewis, uh, actually a trilogy of books. Uh, It's called his Space Trilogy. It's going to be known as that. And the first one is called Out of the Silent Planet. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's a fascinating title. This uh, guy gets on a spaceship and he leaves Earth. And the title of the book is Out of the Silent Planet. And actually the whole plot of the whole trilogy is the Earth has lost its song. The rest of the cosmos in you know, in this fictional trilogy, the rest of the cosmos has not lost its song. It's in communication with the creator. But because we've gone to war with one another and with God on earth, communication has been cut off. Praise, outgoing praise has been cut off. Wisdom getting through has been cut off. And it's going to stay that way until there is some mission to revitalize communication. That's the whole plot out of the silent planet. And it's like this psalm is saying, there are multiple forces in your life. And it's not just felt by you. It's felt by your children. It's felt by strangers. It's felt by other nations, by rocks and hills and precipitation that like can, can do what it's created for or not. And there's this ongoing urge, do what you're meant to do. Do what you were created for. Praise, praise, praise. There's another voice you can listen to. There are other things that you can purpose reality for if you want to, but that's a really bad idea. Praise. This is one of those key passages, Psalm 148, that reinforces that every created thing is for praising God, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is so important for us. Not just you and your children, How centering is it to say, I am for praising God? But it's not just you and your children or your friends. It's what your home is for. It is for praising God. It is what your stoop is for. It is for praising God. It is what your stuff is for. It is what your talents are for. It is what your dreams are for. And you can bring that into wise harmony with every created thing in the cosmos. Or you can be silent and seek another purpose for reality. Psalm 148 reminds us that you do not need to invest things with meaning. This is really big. This is maybe the big difference between a Christian and an atheist worldview. We do not need to invest things with meaning, and this is all you can do. Just read Richard Dawkins. If you have an atheist frame, there is no meaning. You choose it, you invest it, and then you somehow unfathomably try to stand on it in a way that will last. Or you can recognize meaning that is already there. And that is actually work. It's interesting work. What does this mean? It's something. 
We know it's for something. It's fascinating. And this is what the sciences can be about if we want them to be. And what the arts can be what they're about if we want them to be. Recognizing given meaning. And what is the meaning? Praise the name. Praise the person who created it all because he's good and loves all creation, but primarily mankind. That's what it all means. Verse 13 again, his name alone is exalted. You know, Christians, when you read that verse, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. We think of all kinds of New Testament passages, I hope, like Philippians 2, uh, where the Apostle Paul says, you know, it's because Jesus being God took on the form of a servant and laid his life down to bring communication back to the silent planet because he laid everything down. Therefore, for that reason, God has exalted the name of Jesus Christ to be the name above every name before which every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name. The name of Jesus we see in verse 13. Psalm 148 is a picture of that scene. One last thing you need to know before I go to the next point, which you, know, you remember is kind of similar to the first one. This is like a song of Genesis 1, but only like a song about Genesis 1. It's actually very, very different. These are all the created things that we read about on the first, first page of Scripture, but there are some key differences. Here's just one in verse 11. It says, kings of the earth and all peoples praise the Lord. Remember in the Genesis account, there's just kind of infantile humanity. Just a pair. Just two. And here we see nations praising the name of Jesus. Whatever else is going on in the psalm, its setting is after everything has gone wrong because of sin and war, and all of our brokenness, and after everything has been made right about all the things that have gone wrong, after everything's been made right through the blood of Jesus that covers us from all unrighteousness and restores us into proper relationship with our creator, it's after that that like people from every nation are finding reality again and saying this is what we're for and we're not going to be quiet anymore. We're going to praise the name. Everything is invited into right worship again. This is more a picture of the last day than it is a picture of the first. Everything worships. Here's the second point. No really. <laughs> Everything worships. And this is what Psalm 150 is all about. There's something really different and interesting going on. Look on page 4, Psalm, Psalm 150. On page four, something very similar but also really different is happening in Psalm 150 compared to Psalm 148 that we just looked at. If Psalm 48 is like everything that God created, when he said, let there be, and it was, it's all that stuff that's praising God, creeping things and wind and, you know, hail and all that stuff, and people. There's very different things in Psalm 150 that are praising the Lord, particularly in verses three through six. First, without skipping over verses 1 and 2, it's important to see that this is actually describing a worship service in heaven, not on earth, in heaven. Verses 1 and 2. It says, praise God in his sanctuary 
praise him in his mighty heavens. Now remember, every earthly place of worship, the author of Hebrews tells us, is just like this shadow, this imitation of the real sanctuary in the heavens. It's that one that's being read about here in Psalm 150. There, in that sanctuary, in those mighty heavens, everybody praise him. But you know what's crazy about verses 3 through 6? It's all earthly, human, not created on the first day, stuff created by human beings that God created us to create that somehow makes its way into eternal worship. Let me say that again. Trumpets and lutes and harps, these things were not there on the first day. Tambourines, dances, strings and pipes, sounding cymbals, clashing cymbals, all that stuff somehow making its way into a scene of eternal praise. There are a lot of things going on here that I think we need badly. And there's, there's more than I'm going to share with you, but here are just a few. First, it's really interesting that musical instruments, when they first show up in the Bible, are instruments of evil. Musical instruments are created by a descendant of Cain. And they're put to violent and evil environments somehow. It's in Genesis 4. It's very interesting. Somehow, though, these instruments over the course of human history, because of the way God works, they are transformed and redeemed into things that are capable of honoring God. I just think that's fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? How many times have we read in Scripture what we intended for evil he used for good? This goes beyond just simple forgiveness of sins. God's doing something to take what we intended for evil at different points in our history and using it to glorify himself. It's there. It's just there. And you know what? You can say the same thing about cities. The first city was built by Cain. And yet, at the very end of the scripture, when humanity is described as returning to paradise, it's not just described as a garden. It is. It's also described as a city. Again, something associated with evil originally is redeemed. Here's the point, I think. I don't want to lose you. Let me be really clear about what I'm saying. God's grace does more than just reverse the effects of sin. God's grace can transform the effect of sin just as sure as he took a Rahab and a Bathsheba and made them mothers of Jesus Christ despite what was done to them. Grace transforms the effects of sin to such an extent that human cultural forms are redeemed to be a part of God's heavenly reality. Now here's what I, where I want to end with you all. And I don't know the answer to all these questions, but the really important biblical questions that I think have a, a lot of relevance for 2022. What else in our worship will be put to redeemed use like that? Let me ask you this. Is it only going to be like lutes and harps and trumpets that are in the eternal kingdom? Like instruments that were manufactured in the late bronze, early Iron Age. It's like that's where it stops. Nothing else ever the humans ever make in terms of instrumental music will ever make it into the kingdom. I really don't think so. I really don't think so. What does that mean? 
That means all kinds of interesting, fascinating thing if, things if we get our voice back. If we say, look at what has, how, look, look what we have, however it came to us, how might God redeem this? Look what gifts we have. Look at what songs are being ris- written. Look what that culture is doing that seems really biblical and yet original. Look what's being worked out that, as best we can tell, really might be there getting celebrated on the last day. I don't know all the answers to these questions. This is where I have to start saying, I don't know, but it's interesting. Let me give you one tension that I feel as I've gone through this series about worship. Scripture does regulate our worship, for sure. Like, we have all this instruction about what to do. There's a frame, and I, I hope it's been clear enough. You don't just come and worship any way you want. That's really not biblical. And yet, at the same time, within that frame that Scripture gives us, there are all these cultural expressions that keep showing up through different tribes and through different languages and it seems like they bless God. Psalm 150 verse 4 says something I don't really like. It's in, this, it's in that first half. Praise God with tambourine and dance. I've never been a fan of dancing in worship. Maybe it's because I'm not that great. I've got a couple steps that I, like, I, I shine on in, in weddings sometimes. And a long time ago in the second floor of the Kyber Pass on 2nd Street. But... I don't really know what to do when it comes to dancing and worship. You know who does? Urban Worship Center. They have a praise dance team. They have kids up here dancing during worship. Some of it's quite spontaneous. Some of it has been rehearsed. Now, I'm not going to look at Psalm 150 verse 4 and say, when I look at that, that's not in the kingdom because we're not doing it here. How could I? Other things that you'll see if you come to worship with Urban Worship Center. You see a lot of interesting use of bodies in worship, not just dance. Things like kneeling, kneeling in prayer before the service starts, asking that God would meet us and help us bring him a sacrifice of praise. You also see some hand raising. You see... I should say, it's interesting that you see kneeling here, even during the worship service, sometimes some of the musicians are kneeling at some point, but they don't kneel during the confession of sin, which is what many other traditions have historically done, which is also interesting to me. You see a lot of physical contact during prayers at the end of the service. Other physical expressions in other traditions, a lot of us have seen people cross themselves. Not just in the Roman Catholic tradition, but there's a long Protestant history here among Lutherans and Anglicans, and it's very rich with symbolism. I mean, down to these two fingers are the two natures of Christ, and these three are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Son descended, were covered by the cross, covered by the Holy Spirit, and it defines our life. And yet, sometimes we're suspicious. Yeah, of course, there's different theology and different traditions we want to be careful about, but will none of this be seen in the kingdom just because we don't do it here. And the questions, friends, go on and on and on. I think it's a really good time to ask them. No, I have no assumption that we'll answer all of them between now and January or in the next 10 years. 
but they're really important questions to ask. One other note of clarity that I'll end with. I do not sense, according to Scripture, that congregations should just constantly appropriate from one another until we all reach some kind of new, uniform, monocultural worship where there's like no difference between congregations. Actually, our differences are really beautiful. But there are occasions where we should say, how have I never seen that before? I just think, why are you dancing? Why do I say that instead of, what an amazing example of Psalm 150 at work. That's what I think that I mean. The differences are beautiful, but there's so much that we're missing. The vision of Revelation 7 is many tribes, not just one monocultural one. Many tribes, many languages, many peoples, different but unified. Different as can be, but unified under the one name, having gotten their song back. I don't know any better application to give you all. Like, isn't it rich to think about something we're doing here, even though, my goodness, half the time worship services here like aren't necessarily what we would call beautiful <laughs> or organized or even always as completely thought out as they could be, you know? And yet at the same time, even this is being glorified on the way to that beautiful union of song in the kingdom. I think so. And I commend it to us to keep praying to align ourselves with. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.